0: What we want is in that room. They're coming in here, aren't they?
1: Welcome to Bottle Episodes, a podcast where we discuss very special TV episodes or movies that focus their action on a single primary location. I'm CJ. I'm Courtney. And today we will be discussing the 2002 thriller Panic Room, directed by David Fincher, written by David Coop. The bottle of the week is... A brownstone on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and this is what this movie is about: a mother and daughter trap themselves in a panic room to hide from burglars, but the burglars want what's in the panic room.
0: Ooh. Ooh.
1: <laughs> did you know that Nicole Kidman was originally slated to be in this movie?
0: I I did do a little digging and research, mm-hmm. and I I found that out after the fact but I didn't know it going into the movie.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I find it really interesting that that I, I, I'm trying to picture this movie with Nicole Kidman. I think as it would have worked. I, I think, think it, it would have worked. worked. It, w-
1: it, it would have resulted in a completely different movie. David Fincher kind of oh, speaks yeah. to that. He says that Nicole Kidman was going to bring this kind of, she was going to make the role about grace and physicality, mm-hmm. you know, very Nicole Kidman. Whereas Jodie Foster had kind of like, you know, this grounded, earthier, Mm -hmm. I guess, presence. And so Kristen Stewart was cast as a foil to Nicole Kidman. So she was going to be like the tomboy, and there was going to be a lot more conflict between mother and daughter. And when Jodie Foster came in at the last minute, because... Nicole Kidman, she suffered some kind of injury or like an injury that she sustained, I think on Moulin Rouge was exacerbated oh. by the time she got around to filming Panic Room. So she oh, so wow. actually they they shot some scenes with her like she was in the movie and actually in the behind the scenes featurette on the DVD. There's that iconic shot where the camera's like twisting um, yeah. as it sort of like stays fixed on her face and and, and mm-hmm. she's in the bed. They yeah. shot that with Nicole Kidman.
0: Really? Wow.
1: They did. So she was in it and then she had to like drop out. So once Jodie Foster swooped in, they sort of rewrote the dynamic so that mother and daughter were more similar to each other.
0: Interesting. That makes sense. That makes sense. Because I definitely feel like there was some caretaking that definitely happened. Like you can definitely feel like the fact that Jodie Foster is supposed to be playing a little bit more on the fragile side of things. Mm-hmm. But I can definitely see that in a Nicole Kidman performance. I can understand that performance a little bit more as opposed to Jodie Foster, who I definitely feel would be like, all right, where are my brass knuckles? Let's get to let's get to work on these dudes in my house. Forget exactly this room.
1: Yeah, right? yeah. She kind of um, goes to that like Sigourney Weaver place a lot oh, yeah. quicker than I like think Nicole Kidman would have. Yes, yes. <laughs> But I like the movie that we got. Yeah. I love the movie that we got, and I love the performance that we got. And I'm kind of jumping all over the place here, but it's all related. <laughs> I do find some of the characters cartoony and thinly drawn. Mm-hmm. Jared Leto's character, I cannot oh, stand. Yeah. Those Corner realtors Jared. at the beginning cannot stand. So there is kind <laughs> of like this cartoon blockbuster vibe. And I honestly think that mother and daughter were going to be that cartoon ha Independence Day, Jurassic Park style of character dynamic until, Mm. you know, we had this last minute switch out and Mm. Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart kind of like played similarly to each other. What I'm getting at is I think it was a happy accident. I think that there was like a nuance and a um, kind of groundedness that was not Mm -hmm. intended.
0: Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I I think that Casting these two folks who feel very similar because they feel like a mother and daughter through and through. The whole time I watched it, all I could think was, are we sure they're not related or like distant cousins or something? Because they definitely feel like family when you're watching them on screen. I do want to say that I think that Forrest Whitaker actually gives a little bit more of a nuanced performance than I was expecting. And then, of course, Jared Leto is going to Jared Leto. He's got cornrows. He's got an excuse (laughs) to go big like... Why wouldn't he? You know, but yeah, I, I I'm 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 really happy with the heart of this film. I'm really happy with, you know, what we get out of the two of them interacting with each other. It definitely feels like Jodie Foster has either tempered down she her impulses. Uh, In terms of, you know, at one point in time, I was the same kid. I am my daughter's mother, for sure. Or possibly that that marriage that she was in was so trash that she definitely kind of ended up beating herself down a little bit. And that is where we find her at the start of this piece. And now she is back in a place where she's trying to find herself again. And she finds herself by the end of the film, I feel like. So, uh, I know that took us all the way to the end of the movie, all the way through a little bit of a hero's journey there. But uh, I, I agree with you. I definitely think that that was a happy accident that we got out of that casting.
1: It's a good good overview. Good overview we just did. I'm going to spit <laughs> some fast facts at you. Tell me. So like I mentioned, written by David Cope, who did mm-hmm. Jurassic Park, Mission Impossible, Spider-Man. So he's a huge heavy hitter.
0: Huge. busy man, yeah.
1: Uh, the movie was directed by David Fincher, one of my all-time favorite directors. He did Seven, Fight Club, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, Mindhunter, mm-hmm. among yep. many others. <laughs> uh, the movie opened March 29, 2002. My. It grossed $30 million opening weekend, stayed at number one for, I believe, two weeks, $96.4 million in the U.S. and Canada, and its world gross was $197.1 million. So it did well. And it made back Mm. its budget, of course. The budget was 48 million. Okay. So yes, this is one of my all-time favorite movies to look at, to look at, (laughs) and just immerse yourself in. So yeah. Aesthetically, I'm like,
0: beautiful. Every frame of
1: painting, truly. (laughs) And Fincher is one of those like filmmakers, filmmakers.
0: Mm -hmm. He is. Yes. Yes. Absolutely.
1: For me, and we will tease this out. I think the story is like so thin.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. One hundred. Yeah. Paper thin. Simple, 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 simple. Yes.
1: And it's a fine line because I applaud the simplicity. Mm -hmm. Right. This was the easiest summary that I've ever written for for these podcast episodes (laughs) that we do. The plot was even simpler than some of the Friends episodes we've dissected. You know what I mean? (laughs) Everything happens in like one or two sentences and that's it. So I like the spareness. I love the spareness. I'm not saying that they should have made it complicated with, we should have seen Forrest Whitaker at his panic room installation job plotting. (laughs) You know, I like how bare it is. But there are times where I think it is too bare.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. I I feel like, I like that in the simplicity of it, in the bareness of it, in the, perhaps the threadbareness of it, mm-hmm. uh, we find clues. It, it leaves a lot of room for hints to drop, for people to kind of follow along without having to actually tell you anything. You just sort of experience it on screen. This might be controversial. I did get a little bit of perhaps maybe a Home Alone vibe <laughs> from this movie, <laughs> just like a little bit. There was just a moment where I was like, is this Home Alone for grownups? It's hilarious because
1: you're not alone in that. David Fincher said that that was a concern during production.
0: Oh, did he say that? That people (laughs) will
1: compare the film to Home Alone.
0: Sorry, David. (laughs) 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 Whoops. But yeah, no, I I definitely had that thought of like, okay, the, the goal here is just to get inside the house to get this big pot of money that is somewhere in the house. And surprise, it is inside the panic room. And 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 I was like, OK, well, I feel like now there's room for these larger, broader characters. And we can talk about him either now or later. But Raul definitely, as much as we were enjoying Jared Leto with his cornrows playing it big, Raul felt like the most cartoonish. This sort of, you know, malevolent presence that shows up and is just chaos for chaos sake. Even though he's after the money, it seems like he's after more than the money. He wants to sow chaos. He wants to sow pain and hurt in this house. And so it just felt bigger, perhaps, than it needed to be, even though he was cool and calm and collected the whole time he was doing this, except for toward the end when he starts kind of flailing. But at the same time, it was just really interesting that we did not, as the audience, have to be directly told or fed anything. And I think the simplicity lent itself to that. It allowed us to pick up on clues throughout the film. So it was, to your point, it was very much something that was both a pro and a con for this film.
1: Right, right. I have more hot thoughts on Raul. I do. Oh, I'm, I'm kind of aligned with what you were saying. Well, we can get to that in a sec. I do have some hot behind the scenes tidbits. Someone uploaded the DVD featurettes to YouTube.
0: <laughs> nice. We love... Oh, God, I miss featurettes. I miss... I,
1: oh, my God. You would think that <laughs> in this streaming world, featurettes would not have been left behind. I wouldn't mind if they were even hidden behind a paywall. Yeah, you know what I mean? I'd be fine like, with that. You finish watching all of Search Party, and you want yeah. more, and it's like, hey, yeah. pay HBO $2 to listen to this commentary from the showrunners. I would say... Hard yes, sign me up.
0: CJ, I feel like you need to like immediately cut <laughs> that from this podcast and then just go to HBO and be like, here's my be great like, idea. Hello, <laughs> I'm now here you to save the entire <laughs> industry.
1: Right. Um, but yes, so uh, total flashback to DVD featurette land. There was this one 50 minute featurette just about the production of Panic Room. And it was my favorite kind of behind the scenes featurette because very minimal... Uh, Flash and editing and music—they just let the raw footage of the the behind-the-scenes camera just run.
0: Wow! Right? So you got
1: to see like David Fincher direct, right? Mm -hmm. He has some insane directions. We all know that he has this reputation for being meticulous and demanding, and you get to see it in action, which is very (laughs) amusing. So, like I mentioned, (laughs) Nicole Kidman was cast, then she was out, then Jodie Foster was in. Then midway through production, Jodie Foster becomes pregnant and they end up having to halt production for like nine months. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yes. I think that they they were able to still shoot with her pregnant, but they had to bring in a stunt double so she couldn't do anything physically strenuous. And then they had a couple of outside scenes that I think they took Mm. a stab at shooting in okay. in that June June two thousand, and the producers looked at the dailies. They were like, no, because they <laughs> no. did the whole TV sitcom thing <laughs> where they had to like hide her belly. <laughs> oh,
0: <laughs> they're like, absolutely not.
1: You wait for her to have that baby, and then you try again. And that's exactly yeah. what they did. So they they Good. reshot that scene, which sucks because conceptually, I actually do like the way that they shot the scene originally. Okay, um, despite the fact that they were like hiding her belly, I liked what David Fincher did. We're flashing forward to the end. But they, this is just an example of his, like, meticulousness. It ends on that park bench,
0: mm-hmm. right? Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: They have both actresses on that park bench, but they they have raised it up, mm. like, eight feet so that they could get a specific shot of the skyline, the Manhattan skyline, right? Wow. And then they frame it in a really interesting way, and then they do this whole, like, dolly zoom sort of camera move. It looks really cool, and I don't exactly know why they couldn't replicate it for the reshoot, but they yeah. did. Yeah. Uh, they okay. kept it a lot simpler. So mm. despite all of the obsessive pre-planning that yeah. David Fincher did, he 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 pre-visualized the whole thing with like these animated storyboards. There were just as many monkey wrenches yeah. that, that sort of interrupted this production. So it was yeah. it was kind of like a wash. It it didn't seem like total chaos. It I, I don't know that you would call it a troubled production. But it was not a smooth production.
0: Yeah, no.
1: No. And in fact, Dwight Yolkamp, who plays Raul, Mm -hmm. said that it was a little bit, he called it a method experience. Like they all, (laughs) like cast and crew felt like they were trapped in the panic room (laughs) in one never ending night. Um, Oh my God. This movie is a production design feat. The production designer is named Arthur Max and he built the entire four-story brownstone and the surrounding buildings on a soundstage. So it's all fake. It's like rear window level scope that we're talking here.
0: That's amazing. Um,
1: And he had to build it to withstand the weight of the cast and crew and equipment and also construct movable walls and floors and ceilings to make room for the camera.
0: But it's so good. Like, it's so good. Like, that feels like a house. Yeah. It it doesn't feel like thin walls on a soundstage Uh obviously it's not because they had to build it to withstand everything but it feels you feel the presence of that house um i mean we can say what we want to say about you know how much that house actually probably costs but it is still amazing to see it and think this cavernous space for sure is too much for two people and of course it's going to draw in some kind of Some kind of scary element. You feel that 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 intensity from the design of the production. And I I was truly blown away uh, by that house, by that presence. I thought it was like an on location shoot that they had done. I did not realize they had built that. That's incredible.
1: And they were able to sort of mishmash all of these details from actual brownstones that they loved. So, you know, (laughs) the best tile, the best wall. It was like a, a um, you know, an Upper West Side greatest hits of architecture, <laughs> if you will. That property took 110 craftsmen, 15 weeks to build the four-story set. Construction required over 150 tons of steel and half a million mm-hmm. linear feet of lumber, and the total cost was six million. So, an eighth oh, so of the, the budget.
0: Right. So, basically,
1: how much it actually cost? <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: In 2000, <laughs> let's be clear. Right, in right. 2000, it cost $6 million. <laughs> mm. Oh, my goodness gracious. Wow, that is really, that is truly a feat. Like, I, I'm i happy that they did it because it gets the effect that they want. Um, it feels like, and we can talk about this later, but it feels like a play when you're inside of that space. It feels yeah. like you're just interacting with those few folks in that space and you're so immersed in that world that I guess, I mean, to be honest, I now that you say it, I can't really imagine it being done any other way. It would have to be done on a soundstage.
1: Right, right. Uh,
0: in order for that to happen.
1: and And doing it on a completely fabricated set, of course, allows for all those crazy, trippy camera moves. I love mm-hmm. how back then, a lot of the reviews got hung up on, is this self-indulgent? Do we need to be swooping the camera through coffee pot handles and and yes. <laughs> I'm like, yes, yeah, we do. Well, suddenly, we're talking about the necessity of things. It's like we we do, <laughs> sure when you play with technology, there's there's this incessant need to have a justification for it, mm. which mm-hmm. I kind of get. But I'm also like, yeah, I think it's okay to say that we want to do this because it's cool. Yeah, <laughs> which I know sounds like bad filmmaking, but like, let's just be honest. Sure, there. We can say that it makes things more claustrophobic. And and okay, here is a valid reason to do all those swoopy-crazy camera moves. Mm-hmm. It does really build the suspense in a visceral way because it does. in these kinds of movies, the suspense totally depends on the geography because mm-hmm. when the camera swoops down the stairs instead yeah. of cutting, then you're sort of timing. You're doing it automatically. You're saying, okay, right. it takes that long to go up and down these stairs. So when the big chasing happens, you're like, okay, well, it would take me like 20 seconds to run up those stairs. And you just feel a lot more immersed and engaged. You know, it's like your body is feeling the suspense.
0: Absolutely. That is a really great point about it being geography that causes that suspense. But also, I mean, we're talking about a story that is about indulgence, right? We're talking about this man that has so much or had so much that he had to install in his own home. This panic room where he still got to feel in control of everything, that God's eye view, where he can move, he can see through the walls, he can, you know, kind of squirrel his way around in that, (laughs) through that coffee pot handle. Like, it makes sense that we would use these kinds of uh, camera moves in order to display that kind of excess within this home, and also to give us access to that entire space as well. Right. So... You know, I, I feel like, you know, go nuts. Have a good time. Give us, show us your fame your favorite camera tricks. Don't exactly. shy away. Like, yeah. Get into it.
1: You make a really good point. I do think it is a movie about power and control and how both sides sort of seed power and control to the other side. And uh, Fincher sort of implicates us in that. You know, we yes. feel the power and control, right? Mm-hmm. We feel like we have the God's eye view until we don't. Right. Right. Exactly right. And the last little nugget I'll share is that the film was shot in sequential order, which rarely, if ever, happens. The only other movie that I can recall where that happened was E.T., which Spielberg did to retain the performances of the children.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
1: Here, you know, they did it just because, well, the set kind of gets destroyed by the end.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Right. (laughs) There's Um, no coming back from that sledgehammer. (laughs) Yeah, that's impressive.
1: Well, you want to go through it?
0: Let's run. Let's run right through it.
1: Let's go through it. Act one. (laughs) Jodie Foster plays recently divorced Meg, who moves into a four-story Upper West Side brownstone or townstone, With her daughter, Sarah, played by Kristen Stewart, the brownstone comes with a panic room, a concrete and forced shelter to be used in the event of a home invasion. That night, a trio of burglars, including Burnham, played by Forrest Whitaker, Junior, Jared Leto, and Raul, played by Dwight Yoakum, break into the house. Meg and Sarah lock themselves in the panic room. See how easy that was? (laughs) Easy peasy. And yet that's like the first 30 minutes of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) thoughts
0: I really was surprised by my reaction to this film Hmm. I think this fell into a category of I never watched this movie because I was too young when it came out and so as a result I, I knew of it like I knew that this might this felt like the beginning of Jodie Foster's like she had her brief taken moment uh, where she decided that she was going to be like an action hero a little bit. And I loved that. I love that for her. I knew that that was like this was one of the first movies that really kind of showcased that range for her. Um, and I just I I was really taken <laughs> to come back to take it. I was really I really enjoyed this film. I really thought that um, it was an excellent opportunity to just showcase her strength i mean that seems like an understatement she's jodie foster she's going to be amazing and whatever you put her in but to your point this this movie felt you know the, the premise seemed really thin they're just in here we're trying to get the thing that they are literally standing on top of how are we going to get them out of this space because i mean let's be real for me If I get in that panic room, I'm not leaving. I'm just (laughs) staying there. Like, that is it. It's over. Um, It was really interesting to see what David Fincher did with it in order to make it more arresting, giving us all of that uh, space that we could see. I loved the scene where not only did we not only were we introduced to this property once and yeah I'm going to say the property. Um we were introduced to it once with the in the scenes with the realtors but we were also introduced to it again through the eyes of the folks who were coming in to rob the place and it was really 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 anxiety producing for me to see that it makes sense that the child would be on the top floor away from the danger but it also is the furthest room away it felt like emotionally from the actual panic room itself which automatically just sent me in this place of complete tension for the rest of the film so this film does a really great job setting you inside of those tension moments and letting you just hang there until until the moment is resolved and I don't feel necessarily that you get a moment of relief until the very end of the film, um, and that exhale is just—it's chilling. <laughs> that big, that that big heave, that big sigh at the end. That final scene with Forrest Whitaker—you're just kind of like, "Oh my god! Oh my <laughs> god! Oh no!" And that is when you feel like you can finally breathe in at the end of the film.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: What about you? How do you, I know you enjoy this film? But how do you how do you feel about it revisiting it?
1: I'm always drawn to the colors of the film. And I really love mm. the color scheme, right? Mm. It was like ambers, blacks, browns, like that shock of blue, Yeah. right? Especially like whenever there was fire, like that blue the fire, flip. like that's yeah. really resting. I think like the best way to make effective use of color is to have like three colors. Like Just constrain <laughs> the color palette and like bravo, there's your style. You did it, now you, you, did you it. have style. <laughs> I find it interesting that, that Fincher really wanted to play with darkness in this movie. Mm. And I remember reading an interview sometime when it came out, I tried to find it again, but I couldn't where he said originally his vision for this movie was to have it take place entirely in the dark. Right. Oh, wow. Uh, Which makes me think of like, this is clearly meant to be a contemporary version of like, wait until dark with Audrey Hepburn. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So he, he said that he envisioned just like eyeballs floating in black. Right. Wow. And then the studio was like, we're not going to do that. <laughs> right? No, we
0: cannot give you money um, for
1: that. Sorry. And <laughs> slight side note. When I saw the opening titles of Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, did you ever see that movie?
0: Mm, yeah, I did. Yes. Yeah. Do
1: you remember like that? It's basically all black. It's like black yeah. with like little lines of edge light around yeah. like the faces and, and the keyboard. I laughed because I was like, that's what he wanted to do with Panic Room. <laughs> he finally scratched that itch.
0: See, right. he got to do it.
1: And everything comes back <laughs> around eventually. So, yeah, so I do love that he's playing with with darkness. I love that mm-hmm. he's playing with, you know, those camera booms that he loves so much, right? Yeah. Not just like Ooh. this, like, digital cinematography of, you know, like going through keyholes and such, but, but the camera moves even when they're slight and small, they feel so exacting. And again, you know, it really... Yeah heightens these feelings of of either losing or gaining power because, you know, the camera itself, this is a little bit of a cliche, but the camera itself feels like a character. It does. <laughs> right? Sort of like the referee of this chess match from hell that we're watching. Yeah. And I am going to harp on the script because, I oh God, that's like the one thing that I want to <laughs> tweak about this movie. Yeah, That elevated craft from the mm-hmm. direction, from the acting, from the cinematography, it's just met with, like, this really inane, hearty, hard dialogue.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. I think was
1: kind of, like, in fashion at the time. And I will say, I do think that Jared Leto is just miscast. miss. <laughs> <laughs> I think that he's like trying too hard to be this like sarcastic Chandler Bing type. And I will say this mm. insofar as personalities can can either be in fashion or out of fashion. If you yeah. take yourself back to that time, you know, sarcasm yeah. was like very much in vogue.
0: Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. We were Absolutely. all trying to
1: be Joss Whedon, Buffy, Seinfeld. Right. You know, right. every everyone was was sort of like. Above it all would
0: banter yes, or sarcasm. Yes. Yeah. And,
1: and as a culture, we're not really striving to that anymore. I mean, no. you know, there's some assholes in your life that are there always will be. But <laughs> as a culture, we're not really doing that. And so that really yeah. stuck out to me. It was like the Nokia phone, Jared Leto's personality. <laughs> <laughs> the two things that are most outdated in this whole movie
0: it wasn't seeing like sony's name everywhere on everything <laughs> all the time um i that's a okay that's a hot take for me though okay. with jared leto's casting because i will say this maybe it's just because i'm not necessarily enamored by jared leto that to me it feels appropriate like it feels like the same guy who was like hey i'm gonna play the joker and now i'm gonna do all these weird pranks like that guy feels the same to me yes (laughs) in this and maybe i'm letting that influence what i'm experiencing on screen yeah i'm 100% letting (laughs) that influence what i see on screen um but i don't know i i i kind of i felt the whininess of it but perhaps He was a little bit more in control than that character should have felt. Like there was, I think I get, I think I understand where you're coming from. He felt a little bit more commanding than perhaps that character required him
1: to be. He, he executed the character in a way that was understandable. We'll say, Mm -hmm. because what are the facts? He's a smarmy rich kid, right? Right. He feels like he's due his inheritance. He wants more Mm -hmm. than his share. So he's yeah. just like a bratty, rich kid. Yeah. And that's what we got. Yeah. I think that there's a way to do that where you don't really want the character to, like, die. <laughs> and <laughs> and that when he gets shot in the face <laughs> <laughs> yes, and gets deceased, the- that you're yeah. not like, thank God.
0: <laughs> okay, enough of that. <laughs> enough <Thank> you. <laughs> of you.
1: Because the second that he dies, it's like... Yeah. A much better movie for me like,
0: it's, it's like i almost in, wasn't I, in it
1: I, <laughs> yes <laughs> i just like breathe a sigh of relief <laughs> you talked about <laughs> breathing a sigh of relief all the way at the end i breathe <laughs> a sigh of relief midway through when i was like oh my god thank goodness um okay but we are getting a little ahead of ourselves yes sorry um <laughs> so they lock themselves in the panic room Da-da-da-da. yes then act two Burnham informs Meg and Sarah that what the thieves want is inside the panic room. The thieves try to force them out by pumping gas into the panic room, but that tactic backfires literally (laughs) when Meg sets the gas on fire, injuring Junior. Uh, After several botched attempts to send out distress calls, Meg and Sarah finally get the panic room's phone system to work. A call to the police proves fruitless because they are in a Hollywood thriller. So they call Sarah's father, Stephen, instead, but thieves cut the phone line before Meg can relay a complete message. Junior gives up on the robbery, and Raul shoots him dead. Thank God. (laughs) Stephen arrives, and Burnham and Raul take him hostage. Sarah goes into diabetic shock. She suffers a seizure. Burnham and Raul trick Meg into thinking it's safe to exit the panic room to retrieve Sarah's medication. When she does so, Burnham and Raul lock themselves in the panic room with Sarah, but not before Meg manages to throw Sarah's meds into the room just as the door closes, crushing Raul's hand in the process. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is a good time for me to share my thoughts about Raul.
0: Yeah, yeah, let's talk about Raul. So
1: first, I love the fact, to to flashback to Act 1, I love the fact that the burglars were introduced when they break in. Yes. I think that's so great.
0: I loved that You could totally actually.
1: imagine a lesser movie, like yeah. I mentioned before, cutting to them, planning the heist. Yes. Blah, 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 blah. You know, yes. while we see Jodie Foster and her daughter like checking out the plays. No. Right. Okay. We no. are going to meet them at the break in. And I think that exactly. that is genius. Brilliant movie. Yes. Likewise. I thought that it was creepy that one of these characters is just like in a mask. Like, who's this motherfucker? Right. Why
0: is he here? Yeah.
1: And I love that, you know, you mentioned he's there to sow chaos. Right. He felt like one of those like absolute characters. Right. Like Mm -hmm. the Joker. Like Javier Bardem's character from No Country for Old Men. (laughs) Right? You're just like, (laughs) oh, like I got bad vibes. Bad, bad, bad vibes. Not good. Yeah. Okay. And then the more these people talk to each other, the more he yeah. reveals himself, yeah, talk, 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 And then he removes his mask. It's like some of that yeah. mystique is like stripped away and And I thought that was sort of an unfortunate choice. Um, yeah, I agree. so I hate I that Raul kind of got less creepy as time went on, and then he's he's reduced to this whimpering mess <laughs> right. when he gets right. his
0: hand smashed in the door. It felt like Jared Leto got shot in the face so Raul could take his place and become the new annoying guy. Uh, Because to your point, when he showed up and he's just in his mask and he's he's also there along for the ride, it was so menacing to just be like, who is this guy? Who is he? Why is he here? And it felt like he was going to serve some kind of higher purpose, Um, And I get like being the big boss, final big bad at the end of the movie. Yeah, of course, that makes sense. But I don't know. I expected him to be a little bit more diabolical in terms or intellectualized in terms of his chess moves Mm -hmm. that he was making, as opposed to just being so straight up. Let's keep the gas going. Like, let's just let's just do evil things for evil's sake. It did not feel like there was an actual purpose to underscore his evil.
1: I want to talk about two things. Maybe we'll talk about them in tandem. I don't know.
0: Hmm.
1: One is, well, okay. The umbrella topic is their motivation for breaking in. Okay. Right. I was very disappointed when I saw this back in 2002 Mm -hmm. because all the trailers, all the commercials, and even the first act of the movie seemed to indicate that there was going to be some kind of big reveal. That I thought that there was going to be some kind of like great irony, Right. Uh, Like what they wanted was the daughter or or that this was going to somehow involve either the ex-husband or the ex-husband's new wife. I don't know that making it a soap opera would have been better. So that's I'm not saying like make it more interpersonal, but I thought that there was going to be a huge reveal. And I was very disappointed when all they want is money. And that's kind of a thing with me in general with movies. When all they want is money, <laughs> I feel like it's too easy. And especially for a movie right. like this, I'm like, you're building this up. And if it is just money, then just say it at the top.
0: And be done. And, and be, be done. done. With it. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree with you on that. Because I definitely was like, oh, man, I really want to know what is going to come out of this experience. Like, what 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 is the thing that is motivating them beyond what has obviously been set up that there are... A bunch of younger people in the family who are now arguing over this money and all that kind of stuff. I will say, just as a side note, uh, it took me a minute, but then hearing, remembering that uh, Jared Leto's character's name was Junior, I was like, oh, he was telling us the whole time that this guy was a member of the family. Right. That's brilliant. Um but at the same time i was expecting there to be some sort of double twist is this like a cousin who has come into the family and is trying to either set things to right or is acting on behalf of the state the estate or you know something is going on here beyond just Jared Leto hired these guys to help him right. rob the place so he could get some more money. Like right. I was, I'm, I'm with you. I thought there was going to be another reveal under all of this.
1: Like and and, and oh, that's it. Give me that okay. heightened. Right. Give me that
0: new thing. Yeah.
1: So related to that, the second thing I want to talk about is the motivation for all three of the robbers. We don't yeah. get one.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. I mean, uh, and tell me if I miss something. Okay. So. Jared Leto, he he comes from a wealthy family. He right. you know he wants his share. I'm not really interested in his motivation. That's yeah, fine. Who cares? Right? Whatever. Yeah. Um who else? Raul, he's a bus driver. Mm-hmm. There's one mention of him being a bus driver. Yeah. You're like, okay, it- sure. <laughs> if you're right? an operator of mass transit. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's motivation enough for me. Like, Listen, you paid you've, seen the worst.
0: you've seen the worst of humanity, <laughs> right. okay? I get it. I I, I understand a little bit I was better like, you where what? you're coming get from. Get yours.
1: Get yours. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Um, Forrest Whitaker, you know, he's, he's... Burnham is designed to be the most sympathetic of the three. Right. We don't really get a motivation there, do we? Do you feel I mean, like we need one?
0: I don't necessarily feel like we need one, although I do think that they tried to make it clear that there is something related to a kid in his life. Like he wanted to provide a specific kind of life for his child. And I'm like, okay, okay, great. Like, like
1: Wait, did did he, there was an implication that he had a kid because I missed it.
0: Yeah. So they, so uh, junior in the beginning kind of message, like mentions, you know, Hey, don't you f- feel some kind of way essentially about being in this big house? Wouldn't you like your kid to have something mm. like this? Okay. And then I think that kind of echoes through in a lot of his interactions with Kristen Stewart's character, where he's willing to be a caretaker to her Right. as a result of, you know, it's very clear he has his own child. He's familiar with, you know, helping kids, even though he doesn't necessarily know how to, how to give her that shot. He knows at least how to talk to her to get her to help him uh save her life. It was really, really interesting to, you know, see that they they sewed that. It was very clear that they were trying to make him, like you said, very sympathetic. Because I will say when he first appeared on the screen, I was like, oh, is this, is this a Forrest Whitaker role, a thankless Forest Whitaker role? Or is this a, he's secretly the person we're kind of rooting for. And I will say by the end, I was secretly rooting for him. Like,
1: man, oh, I really wanted him
0: to get away. Um, yes. But-
1: <laughs> and I want to talk about that. And and we're yeah. flashing forward a little to act three, but we can talk about it now because yeah. this is super interesting. Okay. so So the ending in the movie... Well, okay, can I just rattle off Act 3 and then we'll be in Act 3?
0: Oh, yeah, let's rattle off All Act 3. All
1: right, here we again. go. <clears throat> Act 3. Meg pleads with Burnham successfully to give Sarah the medication. Uh, Burnham then retrieves what he and his team wanted, $22 million in bearer bonds from a floor safe in the panic room. Burnham and Raul exit the panic room using Sarah as a hostage. Meg leads them into an ambush, attacking Raul with a sledgehammer. Just as Raul is about to kill Meg, Burnham shoots Raul dead. He then attempts to flee, but is captured by the police. Sometime later, Meg and Sarah make plans to move out of the brownstone. The end. The end.
0: Can you just imagine walking your dog, and there's like a million dollars in bonds <laughs> next to your dog, where your dog is peeing? I'd be like, like what are these imagine? coupons? I'm like, What are these big, weird, green... <laughs> Right. <laughs> Brochures. what is this <laughs> sorry that's just a thought i had
1: <laughs> okay well so speaking of that ending where where the bear bonds are f- floating in the wind and and oh force whitaker burnham thought he was going to get away but he's apprehended at the last second that <sighs> was the ending that the ending that we got that was screened for test audiences and test mm. audiences did not love it because they were like you and me they were like yeah. i feel like he should get away and in he fact, 100% it had been way. so long since I saw the movie that when I was watching it this week, I was like, oh, I hope he gets away. Yeah. And I was very disappointed. Yeah. So they couldn't go back and reshoot because it would have been oh. too expensive. Right. Because they, oh, they broke no. down this four story brownstone. Yeah. Right? So do you want to know what they did? What did they do? They re-edited the ending in oh. order to make him less sympathetic. So I lied. The ending that we saw is not the ending that the focus group saw. The focus group saw an ending where he was somehow more sympathetic. So they tried to cut back on it so we wouldn't feel as bad when Burnham gets caught. And obviously it didn't work because both you and I are still like, I think that he should have gotten away. I also think my conspiracy theory helmet is on now. I think that they maybe removed a motivation for him because Ah. that was probably getting more into that family stuff. Yeah. Right. Maybe, maybe his kid had some kind of a condition or like there was some compelling need that he really needed that money. Cause I do think that that is like a weird detail to leave on the cutting room floor. Right. Yeah. So I think the fact that like, we never know why is because they're trying to, to, to curtail some of that audience sympathy that they've been building up.
0: Ah, they did not work. It It did not work work at all. Not even a little bit. Because I definitely had this moment of, if he comes back, because my my full expectation was when he left, he was gone. Yes. And it was going to be up to Jodie Foster to just resolve the problem, right? Right. That was my understanding of where this movie was headed. But when he came back and he shot old boy in the head, I was like, if he does not get away, this... (laughs) This is Um, (laughs) anti-black.
1: Hate crime. This is a hate crime.
0: This is a hate crime. Mm. I do not appreciate. This is racist. Um,
1: (laughs) I think, okay, I don't know how they would have been able to do this in a way that felt like succinct and true to the tone of the film. But Mm. I could see some kind of like poetic justice sort of ending where he gets away, but he finds out that the Barabans are like inauthentic. You know what yeah. I mean? So he doesn't, he gets away, but he doesn't get the money. I would have been fine right. with that ending.
0: I would have been fine if he didn't come back and then we get the scene of him letting go of the bonds.
1: Sure. And they blow
0: away in the wind. That to me, okay, that's an earned ending. Right. He didn't come back. He didn't help them. End of discussion. But in this case, like he saved Old Girl's life, he came back to get the guy. He made it very clear, like in the beginning, that his whole deal was, I want to get into the panic room. I want to get the money and I want to get gone. End of discussion. And so to me, it felt like he had done too much. Like he had almost too much of a journey himself for him to not be rewarded in some way. Exactly. It just it didn't like I I guess maybe his reward in this film is that he gets to keep his life like maybe that's the (laughs) reward because he's the only one that comes out alive at the end from The Three Thieves.
1: I mean, in my headcanon, I feel like maybe (laughs) Meg and Sarah testify at his sentencing. (laughs) (laughs) He gave her the
0: medication.
1: (laughs) You know, he came back. He saved my life. That's Character the least witness. they can do. Yeah.
0: Right. Listen, the way they were chilling on that bench, I don't know. it like, felt a little right. too relaxed.
1: Okay.
0: A little too, we're looking for a new apartment now and it's all behind us.
1: Like So that is a perfect segue to the epilogue. Yeah. Slash what this movie all means. Mm-hmm. And I have trouble figuring that out. Yeah. When the movie ends, I feel like there's a so what quality to everything, right? right? Like I'm confused as to whether there was even a character transformation, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and, and I feel like we don't even know what these events meant in these characters' lives. It mm-hmm. kind of amounts to like a crazy story that happened in their lives. Like, hey, remember that right. one time our townstone got broken into? That's wild, right? <laughs> But I have this no clear indication. Essay. Right, right, right. What <laughs> happened to you over summer break? Like, that's what it feels like. We don't get the sense that that mother and daughter right. are closer than they were before. They seem close already.
0: Right. right, right. We don't get the
1: sense that Meg has made peace with either her status as a divorcee, right? Like, you made yeah. a great point, which was like, she seems fragile because she's on her own now. And then maybe we can surmise that, you know, she found... That inner strength and now she's going to be OK, but we're not really given that indication. So, like, we have right. to make up these character transformations in our heads. And that annoys me.
0: Right, right. It's like the thing we know about her at the start of the film is that she's a divorcee. And then when they walk into that panic room for the first time, she has this onset of claustrophobia. hmm. And maybe, maybe at the end of this film, she's a little less claustrophobic, I guess. Like, that that's kind of- Maybe. The transformation, right. I feel. <laughs> I mean, aside from her, you know, taking a sledgehammer to her <laughs> $6 million house. But, like, at the same time, it's just like, okay, what was, what was all of this well, what, about right. at the end of this film?
1: I feel like such an easy fix would have been to make- to make Sarah and Meg feel some type of way about home security, right? Yeah. Okay, so if they are, if either of them, we'll say Meg, if Meg is the kind of person who is obsessed with home security and personal safety, right? Mm -hmm. Like, she carries the mace, she carries the keys in her hands, right? Like, she thinks if she follows all of these precautions, if she gets the brownstone with the panic room, then she'll be safe and her daughter will be be safe. Right? Mm -hmm. And then through the events of the film, she learns that you can never be too safe. And then at the end, she learns to accept that, whatever. Right. right? Or she's someone who is lax about home security. And then she happens to buy this house that has a panic room,
0: blah, blah, blah,
1: blah, blah. And now she learns to be you know more vigilant. Either would have been fine and Mm -hmm. either could have just been addressed at the top and then never mentioned again.
0: I do think there is something key though in that, Fun fact that you brought up at the beginning where Nicole Kidman was the original casting choice and Christian Stewart was the foil to her. They were at odds with each other. I, in my head, can see the scene on that bench, meaning, oh, they've come together as a result of this situation. I can see that clearly. That makes sense to me. And these two, as a package deal together, can withstand a lot. And now they know that. They will be OK, but it doesn't necessarily work or feel that same way when we've got two sides of the same coin, you know, exactly. like 1000 like percent two peas in a pod. They'll be yeah. fine. They were going to be fine before. They're going to be fine now.
1: I think you nailed it. Not only that, but also that I think related to what we were talking before, that Nicole Kidman was probably going to give much more of a fragile performance. Right, that we would have, she would have played into Meg's helplessness so much more than Jodie Foster did, and I think that like David Fincher's obsessive pre-planning, I think really locked them into certain choices that they could not back out of. They were just forced to live with it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they're like, we are in these circumstances. (laughs) Let's just let's just do it. Let's just fucking make this movie. So as a
1: result, I would say that despite two. three fabulous performances because i think that kristen stewart really like she she never gets her due even now in 2022 people are just pretending like "Eh, whatever spencer was fine (laughs) right like she never gets her due i think that she's great yeah so despite the fact that uh, there's three fabulous performances in it i would say it's not a very human story (laughs) it's not a very (laughs) character driven story (laughs) <laughs> I would say that that David Cope and David Fincher see the characters as chess pieces and not really people yeah. and that while that's entertaining it kind of leaves like this aftertaste of mediocrity um when the credits mm-hmm. roll but again a really gorgeous engaging movie to look at and yeah. just experience
0: this is 100% a movie my mom and I would go see at a matinee on a Saturday With our snuck in snacks, you know, we would like eat our (laughs) M&Ms that we purchased next door at the Walgreens, right? Like this is 100% that kind of movie. Like it's really good to watch and just enjoy. And you know what?
1: Sorry, if I may. Go ahead. That's really apropos that you put it into those terms of I would just watch this movie with a loved one and have fun with it with some popcorn because- Fincher has been quoted as saying that he makes movies and films. (laughs) (laughs) Like everyone makes fun of the distinction between like movies and films and like film is like the pretentious term, but he just leaned right into it. He's like, no, I make both. I make movies and films. And so one could guess which of his oeuvre he considers Mm -hmm. films. Yeah. I would say Fight Club. Yeah. I would say Seven, probably.
0: Absolutely Seven. Yes.
1: And then... Movies would be Girl with a Dragon Tattoo and mm-hmm. this one, right? Yeah. And, and it was very intentional because I remember reading an interview where he said that he 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 made this one so that it could just be like popular, right? Yeah. So he knew what they were doing. When the movie came out, it was a success for him and Foster financially, right? I think that it was like his highest grossing movie to date.
0: Wow. Okay. Then in,
1: in 2002. And in then, 2000, yeah. Yeah. And then for her, it was either the highest grossing or like second or third.
0: So, okay.
1: so mission yeah. accomplished is my point. It, it did what it needed to it do. It did what it needed. It did what they wanted. However, yeah. I will say that while it's a movie, I feel like it's so close to being a film. And that's <laughs> my frustration with it.
0: It's, it's so that close. line. Yeah, it's, that it's line. so it's, close. It
1: skirts that line, and then it's like, never mind.
0: <laughs> like, listen, just get out the popcorn; it'll be okay. right.
1: <laughs> and the last thing I want to talk about is it has many cinematic influences. Mm. Uh, we mentioned Rear Window, yes. We mentioned Wait Until Dark, yes. And it, in turn, influenced a number of movies, including Ooh. Flight Plan, which Jodie Foster made. <laughs> years a- after this one two or three years yes. after it was released in 2005 it was the movie recommended for me on hulu after i finished watching this movie i was like why not <laughs> i'll go for the extra credit so i watched this movie it is there were so many choices where the director is like trying to do fincher stuff oh no i will say foster's character is a lot more fully fleshed out
0: okay
1: um despite there being so many similarities between panic room and flight plan Mm-hmm. Jodie Foster once again plays a woman trapped in a small location this time a plane <laughs> and she's fighting for her daughter
0: right Of course of course so, she is
1: But I I feel like I understand why she wanted to do a very similar movie. She basically was was looking for a redo in some ways yeah. because character-wise Flight Plan is a much better movie for her. It's just right. like a more terrible script. Like it's yes. a, it's a bad awful no good, oh terrible script.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> Ringing endorsement.
1: Yes. Uh, so watch it sometime. And then and then another movie that I would argue Panic Room influenced in a good way, because I enjoyed it, was Don't Breathe. In 2016 with Dylan Minnette.
0: I'm not familiar with this Okay,
1: one. so Dylan Minnette, from 13 Reasons Why, he oh, yes. plays one of three burglars who attempt to break into a house, but twist... The homeowner is batshit crazy
0: <laughs> Oh,
1: <laughs> and ends up like putting them through the longest night. And he's also blind, huh. which I think is interesting. Oh. So that gives him the advantage of, you know, trapping them in a dark basement. And like ah. he knows the lay of the land. He knows the chessboard and they don't. Interesting. So it's, it's a really, really cool horror movie. And they even have a similar shot, a, a setting of the chessboard shot, where mm-hmm. while that trio of burglars is breaking into the house, we get all of these swoopy shots setting yeah. up the house so that you understand the geography. And I was like, oh, that's very cool. panic room. Final thoughts?
0: I guess I, I had this thought of, because I didn't actually realize, like I knew it was the early 2000s that this had come out. I was really curious to, you know, think about the reception of it considering that, you know, It's a film set in New York, early 2000s. Um, How much of the reception of it was likely, you know, part of that was a response to 9-11. And then the other thought that I had was just in terms of those opening credits where we have all of the buildings rising up out of the concrete jungle. And we've got, you know, this very claustrophobic feeling um, of the city closing in on an individual and how that very last scene is them out in in a park, so it's a little bit more of a natural setting. I, I guess I'm thinking just in terms of what what is what is. I'm still trying to wrap my brain around what does what does it all mean. I know. I think that you film. are
1: literally like th- I, this. Sounds like a transcript of my inner monologue.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay.
1: So a number of things you asked about initial reception at the time. I think mm-hmm. that this got such good reviews because it was right place, right time. I think yeah. that we were all feeling some type of way after 9/11, right? Yeah. And I think that there was a lot of chatter about personal safety. Yeah. About urban threat. You know, yeah. there there was definitely this feeling that like it could all go to hell like at any second, right? At
0: any moment. Yeah.
1: At the same time, there was all of this uh good nature around New York in a weird way. It was like, we were all rooting for it. We're all rooting for New York. Right. And so I think that that allowed people to really connect a lot of dots about this movie and ascribe to it certain underlying meanings that, that they might not have if the movie came out in 2008 or 2015.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I just, you know, I, I think that the film is enough of a blank canvas, like you were saying, that right. people can just see what they want, feel what they want, experience whatever it is that they need to experience, and then leave that theater thinking that, right. yeah, this really connected to me.
1: Another thing that a lot of reviews talked about was this idea of home surveillance, which is just comical mm. to me, right? Because <laughs> surveillance plays a huge role in this movie. Yeah. Right? All of those cameras planted throughout the house and Meg's character and and Burnham and the and the burglars, they both use the surveillance to sort of gain the upper hand. But we're not really saying anything about surveillance. And the reason it makes me laugh right. is because these days everybody and their mother has a ring doorbell. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So I love how like at the time people were like, wow, you're on camera all the time. And this movie a... really like makes us ruminate on that. And now today it's like, yeah, Too much. so like, yeah,
0: sometimes and... we just talk to right. our mailman through the ring, right. like, through the ring, you know, like no big deal.
1: And so that's what I keep going back <laughs> to is if it's not in the characters or related to their mm-hmm. transformation, then it's all in our headcanon. Right. Ex- and that's so like a good point, yeah. Meg and Sarah Burnham, they don't feel any type of way about panic rooms, surveillance, home no. security, personal safety, nothing. Yeah, nothing.
0: Again, as much as I enjoy that the film is not hand feeding us information, I-, I still had a little mild Disconnected confusion as to what made her go. Yeah, no, totally. Why not this house in the panic room? Absolutely, because it very clearly caused her personal distress to stand in that room and to have you know the walls closing in on her. So it was just really interesting to me that you now bring up this point that I hadn't even thought about. We don't even talk about like what it actually means that she has this big surveillance system in her house. Like what does that even mean? Yeah. It's like if she
1: felt so uneasy, then why did she make that decision? Right. Was it just to spite Steven because it was an expensive property? Or was it to protect Sarah? We don't know. So how full would panic room make your bottle, Courtney?
0: Oh man. I've been thinking about this a lot because I mean we we are up in that bottle. We do not leave that. We leave it we, we enter into it, we stay for so much of the film, and then eventually we leave it. So for that alone, I'm going to give this a B, mm. like a solid B. Because they do such a good job, and I know, I know, I I get hung up on this. Maybe this is the point at which you take a drink, you know, dear listener, take a drink. Uh, The loving attention to detail made to the bottle is something that I genuinely appreciated. I do think, though, your point about it being a movie and not a film and how close it gets to a film prevents me from getting to a territory I think I'm going to give it a B like I, I really I enjoyed it. I had a really good time watching it, Um, even though now as we're talking through it and we're breaking it down, I have more questions, I think, than answers. But again, if I was at my family reunion and we were searching around for a film to watch, <laughs> watch on TV and this came on, we would have a great time yelling at the screen. I'm just saying. I think
1: I feel similar, if not identical to you. We're going to do grades this time, like Entertainment Weekly, like we're a couple of Entertainment Weekly critics. I love it.
0: Talk about flashback to to
1: 2002. I'm feeling it. I would say I'm torn between B plus and B. I would say B plus only because, yes, there are all of these missed opportunities with the script but it really is just like based on sheer performance and directorial craft. I mean, like I gotta give props. I would say that if it was just like standard television style directing, this would probably get like a B minus from me. But it is because of like that sheer meticulousness of craft that I just, I love, my eyeballs just love drinking it in. We'll say a solid B plus. All right, well, on that note, This has been Bottle Episodes. If you have an idea for a bottle episode from television history or film history that we should cover, or if you're trapped in a single primary location and need to send a distress call, email podcastbottleepisodes at gmail.com. That's podcastbottleepisodes at gmail.com. Till next time, say goodbye, Courtney.
0: Goodbye, everybody.
1: Bye-bye.